higher saturated fat consumption and higher LDL levels, especially during midlife, seems to increase the risk for Alzheimer's disease and also vascular damage in the brain. Alzheimer's is not driven by genetics. Only 3% of Alzheimer's is driven by the kind of genes that are 100% penetrants. It's a chronic disease, right? And usually people live with memory problems for up to 12 years. We know that as much as 90% of Alzheimer's can be prevented. I mean, that's remarkable. Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready to take charge of your existence and biohack your life? This show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing the tactics lying herein. Welcome back to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Oh my goodness, friends. Very, very excited about today's episode. I had been wanting to do an episode on brain health and specifically Alzheimer's for so, so long. I was waiting for the perfect source to fall into my lap and that happened. Doctors Dean and Aisha Scherzai are the co-directors of the Brain Health and Alzheimer's Prevention Program at Loma Linda. Their books, The Alzheimer's Solution and The 30-Day Alzheimer's Solution are truly incredible, really deep dives into how the brain functions and how Alzheimer's occurs. And I was super excited because they are very plant-based. And I know a lot of guests on this show are very animal-based or keto or carnivore. So it's really nice to bring on the other side of the spectrum. And I was so, so thrilled at the discourse and the dialogue that we had. They were so open to discussing the questions that I think specifically my audience, you guys who are in the low-carb sphere might have. They were just so kind, so wonderful. I really, really enjoyed this conversation. And I think you guys will really, really enjoy it. The show notes for today's episode will be at melanieavalon.com slash Alzheimer's. Those show notes will have a full transcript, so definitely check that out. There will be two episode giveaways for this episode. One will be in my Facebook group, IF Biohackers, Intermittent Fasting Plus Real Foods Plus Life. Find the pinned announcement post and comment something you learned or something that resonated with you to enter to win, something I love. And then you can also go to my Instagram, find the post about this episode, and also comment there to enter to win, something I love. By the way, that often ends up being a full-size beauty counter product, which I will talk about in just a little bit. I have a very exciting announcement, friends. I have officially launched a TikTok channel. I've been on Instagram for a while, but it is time for TikTok. And with the channel, I'm going to be posting daily, very high quality, awesome biohacking content, tips and tricks, things from my life. And I really want to bring the glam to biohacking because I feel like biohacking can be very male-centric or focused on a certain type of person. And I just want to break that stereotype and bring all the sparkles. So please join me there. My handle is Melanie Avalon Official. Please let me know what you'd like to see from me, what you think of the content. I do feel pretty shy about it. So please join me so that we can be friends and just go on the most epic biohacking adventure. Okay, friends, spirulina update. It is still coming. I know it's been taking a while. It's just because I want to make the most ideal spirulina tablets on the market. 
ones that are tested for purity and potency and to be free of all pesticides and just the highest quality. So we've got that spirulina source. It tastes awesome. The issue we're experiencing is that in order to make it into tablets, it requires another ingredient. If you're currently taking spirulina tablets and they say they are one ingredient, they are not one ingredient. There is something in there that is helping to keep that structure. So we're trying to figure out which route to go with this. It's really fun because I keep trying different samples. I think I know which one I like the most, but we'll see which one I end up picking. Either way, I really love the taste of our spirulina. It doesn't taste fishy or LGE, and I really experience the benefits. So stay tuned for that. In the meantime, you can get my other Avalon X supplements at avalonx.us. Friends, have you jumped on the serapeptase bandwagon yet? That's what I launched with, and to this day, it continues to be my most favorite supplement ever. It's a proteolytic enzyme created by the Japanese silkworm. When you take it in the fasted state, it actually breaks down non-living problematic proteins in your body, so it can help address an array of issues. Like I said, it will clear your sinuses, calm inflammation, it may help reduce cholesterol. Studies have shown it can break down amyloid plaque, it can help alleviate pain, and so much more. I take it daily. It is one of the most important supplements in my arsenal. This is the new year. Start it off right. Get some serapeptase. You can get 10% off with the coupon code MELANIEAVALON, as well as a 20% off code when you text AVALONX to 877-861-8318. That's AVALONX to 877-861-8318. Those codes will also work with my fantastic partner, MD Logic Health. For that, go to melanieavalon.com slash mdlogic. And of course, all of my supplements I formulated to be the very best on the market. They're tested multiple times for heavy metals and mold. They're free of all common allergens as well as problematic fillers, which goes back to that whole spirulina formulation issue I was talking about. They come in glass bottles to help prevent leaching of plastics into ourselves and the environment. And we even use the minimal amount of stickiness required for the labels to help with our environmental impact. To get these fantastic products, go to avalonx.us and definitely get on my email list so that you don't miss the spirulina launch special. For that, go to avalonx.us slash email list. Another resource for you guys, if you struggle with food sensitivities like I do, you have got to get my app Food Sense Guide. It's a comprehensive catalog of over 300 foods for 11 potentially problematic compounds. These include things you may be reacting to like gluten, lectins, FODMAPs, histamine, oxalates, sulfites, thiols, whether or not something is a nightshade, and so much more. It even includes autoimmune paleo AIP status. You can learn about the compounds, create your own list to share and print, and finally take charge of your food sensitivities. It is a top Apple app, often in the top 10 for the Apple food and drinks charts. And friends, get it now because I'm going to be updating it to a subscription basis soon. So you definitely want to get grandfathered in for life at one super low price. With the subscriptions, by the way, I'm going to be implementing some pretty cool features, so I need to do subscriptions to help support that. So like I said, get it now before we change to subscriptions. You can get it at melanieavalon.com slash foodsenseguide. And one more thing before we jump in. Did you know there are over a thousand compounds found in conventional skincare and makeup in the U.S. 
that have been banned in Europe due to their toxicity. If you are using conventional skincare makeup, you are directly putting into your bloodstream toxic compounds, including obesogens, which can literally cause your body to store and gain weight. So if your diet's not working, you might want to think about what's happening with your skincare makeup, as well as carcinogens linked to cancer. I'm not making this up and just endocrine disruptors in general, which mess with our hormones. Thankfully, there's an easy solution to this. There's a company called Beauty Counter and they were founded on a mission to change this. Every single ingredient is extensively tested to be safe for your skin so you can truly feel good about what you put on and their products really work. I am obsessed with their overnight resurfacing peel, their vitamin C serum, they have shampoo and conditioner, skincare lines for every skin type, and incredible makeup. It's so amazing that Tina Fey actually wore all beauty counter makeup when she hosted the Golden Globes. So yes, it is high definition camera ready. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code cleanforall20 to get 20% off site-wide. You can get the latest updates from me, specials, sales, samples, and so much more on my email list. That's at melanieavalon.com slash cleanbeauty. And you can join me in my Facebook group, Clean Beauty and Safe Skincare with Melanie Avalon. People share product reviews and their experiences, and I do a giveaway every single week in that group as well. And lastly, if you're thinking of making clean beauty and safe skincare a part of your future, like I have, I definitely recommend becoming a Band of Beauty member. It's sort of like the Amazon Prime for clean beauty. You get 10 back in product credit, free shipping on qualifying orders, and a welcome gift that is worth way more than the price of the year-long membership. It is totally, completely worth it. And I'll put all this information in the show notes. An important announcement, friends. My EMF blocking products are coming. Make sure you don't miss the launch special. For that, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list. EMFs are actually classified by the IARC as a group 2B, possibly carcinogenic to humans. These are such a problem. We are exposed to them through our Wi-Fi, our cell phones, our AirPods, And they are linked to so many health issues, including anxiety, migraines, headaches, even fertility issues. This is such a problem. Thankfully, you can address your EMF exposure. I'm going to help with that with my Avalon X EMF blocking product line. So again, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list to check that out. All right, without further ado, please enjoy this fabulous conversation with Dr. Dean and Aisha Sherzai. Hi friends, welcome back to the show. I am so incredibly excited about the conversation that I am about to have. It is with a topic that affects so many people and I think that we don't realize it affects so many people. The stats that I learned on this topic, the guests that I have today reading their books really just blew my mind. So that is the topic of Alzheimer's and even beyond that dementia, brain health, memory formation, what makes things go wrong. It's really, really a huge topic affecting so many people. And I'd been wanting to do an episode on the subject for a long, long time. And then I actually got approached by, I'm just so incredibly honored, the co-directors of the Alzheimer's Prevention Program at Loma Linda University, Dr. Dean and Aisha Sherzai. They have two incredible books. I read both of them. One is The Alzheimer's Solution, a breakthrough program to prevent and reverse the symptoms of cognitive decline at every age. And then their newest book, which is The 30-Day Alzheimer's Solution, The Definitive Food and Lifestyle Guide to Preventing Cognitive Decline. 
friends. I read this book. I learned so, so much, not just about Alzheimer's and dementia, but the brain, how the brain works, how things go wrong. It's fascinating. It's mind-blowing. I am just really, really excited to jump into this conversation. So Dean and Aisha, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having us, Melanie. We're so excited to be here. So to start things off, you talk about this in your books, but I was wondering if you could tell listeners a little bit about your personal stories and what led you today to where you are with your your focus on this issue. Absolutely. So we're uh, we're husband and wife. We've uh, been together for about 18 years now. 18, yeah. And the day we met, our conversation started around our grandfathers. We both had two grandparents each who had suffered from Alzheimer's disease. And as children of parents and being a part of the family that included you know, them in their environment, we grew up with them being a big part of our lives. They were both our heroes. We learned a lot from them. They instilled all the important values of life in us. So for us, they were role models. And we also had the privilege of being with them for a long time. So seeing them lose bits and parts of themselves for this disease was one of the most painful things that we experienced and our parents experienced. So in many ways, even before we went into medicines, we were essentially caregivers for very amazing incredible people with Alzheimer's disease. And that left a mark. And so we shaped our lives in a way where we wanted to get into the research of neuroscience to understand the brain better. When we went into the field, we were hoping to find a treatment for it so that we could help people not go through that pain that we observed in our parents. And that evolved into a much bigger plan. And now our lives are focused in to not just seeing patients in the clinic and in the hospital, but to disperse this message of hope that devastating diseases like Alzheimer's can be prevented if it's instilled early and in communities. I love hearing that so much. I love when things come from a personal background like that to make change. And I would love to go deep into the science, but I just have a question about the subjective experience of Alzheimer's because I imagine unless you have it. Well, I was thinking about this. I imagine unless you have it, it would be really hard to grasp what that would be like. But when people start getting dementia and or Alzheimer's, and maybe we can explore the differences there, you realize you're getting it, right? And then at some point, do you not realize you have it anymore? Like, I don't mean this as a joke, but like, could I have Alzheimer's right now and not realize it? Great, great question. I mean, first of all, let's define the the, the differentiate between dementia and, and Alzheimer's. Dementia is the umbrella category. It's basically when somebody is having cognitive deficits to the extent where they can't do one of their daily activities, be it driving, their finances, cooking, you know, answering phones, or taking care of medications, any one or many of those. Not because of physical limitations, but because of thinking limitations, cognitive limitations. That's dementia. So it's an umbrella category. And there are many types of dementias, you know, frontotemporal lobe dementia, Lewy body dementia, Parkinson's dementia, uh, PSP, multi-system atrophy, Huntington's dementia. But the biggest one is Alzheimer's dementia, which is 60 to 70% of all dementias is Alzheimer's dementia. At the beginning, they have some distinct features and the pathology behind them are a little bit different. But at the as the diseases progress, they all start looking the same because they start devastating the entirety of the brain. To give them. So they, the, the onset is important. Now, the next question, the element that you ask is, how do we know when we have it? 
Well, I tell people, assume you have it because Alzheimer's is not a point. You don't develop Alzheimer's at a point. It's a journey. And in that journey, whether you're avoiding the traumas or the, the, the negative effects on the brain and, and whether you're accumulating the reserves to withstand life's traumas, that determines whether you're going to go over the edge or not. But the journey is throughout life. I mean, I tell people, assume you're, you're at risk at your, in your 20s and 30s, not in a negative way. I actually look at that as empowering. Because the flip side of, of dementia and Alzheimer's is avoiding dementia and Alzheimer's and building better brain throughout life. Because Alzheimer's is not driven by genetics. Only 3% of Alzheimer's is driven by the kind of genes that are 100% penetrant. Meaning that if you have those genes, no matter what you do, you'll get the disease. Only 3% of Alzheimer's. The rest of Alzheimer's, yes, has a genetic component but it's an interplay between genes and environment and environment dominates. Environment and lifestyle dominate. That's the factor. That's, that's the hope. That's the fact that we, we, we can do a lot about it. And that's where the power is in everybody's life, in their homes, in their communities, and at work. And here's the thing. You don't have to buy a single thing from us, from anybody else, no protocol, no nothing. It's a comprehensive lifestyle, though. You can't fix it with just blueberries. You can't fix it by a little pill here and there. Blueberries are great, but don't get me I wrong. Love blueberries. Yeah. yeah. Let's, but, let's, just, let's just save the blueberries. Oh, we love, there. no, no. Yeah. I, I keep, <laughs> for some reason, this is my month of attacking blueberries. Uh, blueberries are awesome. <laughs> but I want people to know that, you know, they go eat the burger and then they say, oh, I had some blueberries. That's not oh, going yeah. to do it. It has to be very comprehensive, which, uh, you know, our neuro program, which is all of those things. And it's what you do at home on a regular basis and around habits. And I think where we are a little different is twofold. Of course, we've done the research at Columbia and NIH and all of that stuff. But what we did early on is transition to translation, meaning translation of the research into people's lives. In fact, we were the first. And in fact, even now, there's nobody that does it at the community level. And we currently lead the largest brain health community initiatives in the country, just the two of us in beach cities and in African-American churches and other places we're starting throughout the country. And it's not a gimmick. It's a comprehensive approach to brain building, which, by the way, helps you avoid Alzheimer's, dementia, stroke, all of those things. I love that so much. I'm full of so much hope. On the blueberry front, I literally eat like pounds of blueberries. I'm not, I'm not kidding, like pounds. Yes. Oh, same. Yes. Yeah, yeah, we love it too. We love it too. Yeah. My blue is probably just, my blood is just blue. Yes, uh, yes. Because of all the blueberries I eat. I love blueberries. I have a really quick question. So the 3% of people where it is genetic, it's completely unavoidable in that case, or even in that case, is it? Yeah, the, even in that case, which is three genes, presenilin one presenilin 2 and APP. Amyloid precursor protein. Amyloid, yeah. Those are, well, penetrance means the amount of influence by the genes. Those are 100% penetrant genes, meaning that they have profound influence on, on outcome. Huntington's is a similar kind of disease. If you have that gene, that little abnormality on chromosome four, no matter what you do, you're going to get it. Now, in those three genes in Alzheimer's, you still affect the lifestyle. The lifestyle still affects it. In fact, we looked at APP, which is actually in Down syndrome. People who have Down syndrome, if they live to age 50, they almost universally develop Alzheimer's because their chromosome 21 is threefold, right? Triple chromosome 21. And the APP gene, which produces amyloid, is on that gene. So you're getting excess amount of amyloid. But even in that population, when we looked at data, the data at NIH, we saw that 
lifestyle had an effect on even that population. But the other 90% plus, yes, they're genetically driven like APOE4 gene and others, but those genes are not 100% penetrant. In fact, they're literally a relationship between lifestyle and genes. So if your lifestyle is good, the genes don't have as much effect. And there are multiple studies, including our own, that have shown that. Can we paint a picture of what is actually happening in the brain with dementia and Alzheimer's? So we keep mentioning amyloid, but what's the difference between the amyloid and like the tau protein and what is actually happening in the brain? Yeah. So the amyloid and tau are proteins that go ab- abnormal proteins that one sees in those diseases like Alzheimer's. Diseases like Parkinson's is another protein, which is synuclein and others as well. But, and we know that those start being abnormal early on, 10 to 15 to 20 years early. But we don't think that those are the drivers. They are downstream outcomes. What drives them the most is the vascular and inflammatory outcomes. There are four pathways that that we've identified. Oxidation, inflammation, glucose dysregulation, and lipid dysregulation. So lipid dysregulation means the fat levels. Lipid levels go abnormally high, or your genes are not able, or your proteins are not able to process those fat molecules well. One of the other genes that have been associated with Alzheimer's is APOE4. It's actually one of the more common genes. If you have one gene from one parent, your risk goes up four times. If you have two genes, one from each parent, your risk goes up 12 times. So does that mean that if you have two genes, which is only 2% of the population, if you have two genes, you're going to get Alzheimer's? No, nearly 50% of people who have two APOE4 genes never develop Alzheimer's. Now, let's look at that gene. What is that gene for? APOE4 codes for a protein that helps transport fats. So from from cell to cell, from organ to organ. So if you have APOE2, you have a really good protein. It does its job so well. So people with APOE2 are actually excessively protected against Alzheimer's. APOE3 is a wash, but APOE4 does its job poorly. So you actually have a much higher risk of Alzheimer's. So if it's a lipid transporter gene, and some people don't develop it, why? Lifestyle. They have better controlled fats and lipids and triglycerides. So that's one pathway, lipids. The other is glucose or diabetes or prediabetes. We did a nationwide paper research project on prediabetics, not even diabetics, prediabetics. And even prediabetics were at greater risk of dementia. So what is that? Glucose dysregulation. Another way is inflammation. Inflammation is very common. People who have inflammation as a result of joint problems or gingival hyper, you know, inflammation, like people who don't take care of their oral hygiene or head trauma, all these inflammatory diseases, that re- increases your risk of dementia. And then oxidation as well, which comes from food and fat and things of that nature because it, or toxins. So if you take care of those things, guess what happens? Your risk goes down significantly. And the things that determine those four factors are food, exercise, stress, and by with food, I mean food and toxins, such as alcohol and toxins and cigarettes as well. So food, exercise, stress, and sleep. Those four factors are so pivotal in affecting these, these processes that we know that as much as 90% of Alzheimer's can be prevented. I mean, that's remarkable. When we said this a few years ago, we would not even be invited to talks. But now everybody's accepted that the numbers vary. Some people say 50%, others say 60%. We say 90% if if it's optimal. But everybody agrees that Alzheimer's, for the most part, can be avoided. 
So those four pathways, the lipid dysregulation, glucose, oxidation, inflammation, is it the effects of those lead to or encourage the amyloid and tau buildup? And then that is still what actually causes the the dementia? Yes and no. Yeah. They they promote amyloid, yes, they promote then subsequently amyloid tau as well. But in themselves, actually more commonly, they themselves significantly affect the outcome. So, so, and, and that's the thing over you know, the last few decades. The reason why we have very little hope of finding one treatment for Alzheimer's disease is because everybody in, at NIH and in the world of science have been focusing on amyloid the downstream effect. And, you know, we know that there is an abnormality of amyloid beta protein clearance versus production. So either, you know, there's too much production or there's too little clearance of that bad protein that causes damage to brain cells and their connections. Same goes for tau. But what causes that imbalance, it's multifactorial. It's not just inflammation. It's not just oxidation. It could be a combination of different things or all of them in some people. And that's why people come to Alzheimer's or they manifest Alzheimer's based on their specific risk factors. You have very healthy people who are runners who, you know, relatively eat well, but then they have incredible high amounts of inflammation because they're not getting enough sleep, right? Or you have somebody who's had, you know, multiple head traumas throughout life but they live healthy otherwise. There you go. That increases their risk of developing Alzheimer's disease. You have somebody who, you know, has no stress, sleeps really well, but their food is just horrible. They will develop Alzheimer's disease through a different route. So it's a it's a very multifaceted, multifactorial, bigger picture. And I think that's, I'm happy to hear, we're happy to hear and see that, you know, finally scientists have realized that it's almost impossible to find one treatment, one medication, that it has to be a very complex approach to this disease. It's not one disease, it's multiple different things happening in the brain at the same time. Wow. So it sort of sounds like the search for a universal cause of aging, but nobody can really agree. And there's all these different hallmarks, which seem to overlap a lot with the four that you outlaid for for Alzheimer's. In many ways, you're right. Yeah. I mean, uh, this is not just those, those four pathways are not just for Alzheimer's, but for other diseases as well. But why Alzheimer's? Because the brain, this little three pound organ, 2% of the body's weight consumes 25% of body's energy at any one point. And so it's, it's overwhelmed all the time. So that's why the effect on the brain is probably significantly more than any other organ in the system, in the system. Hi, friends. Do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th Annual Biohacking Conference, May 30th through June 1st in Dallas, Texas. And of course, I have a massive discount code for you guys. I went last year to the one in Orlando, and it was one of the most fun times of my entire life. I met and got to hang out with so many guests that I've had on the show. I met so many of you guys. And of course, there's lots of Danger Coffee and Dave Asprey approved meals and dry farm wines. And that's just the social aspect. The conference itself is mind-blowing. They have this incredible expo where they have all the biohacking supplements, all the biohacking things. You can learn about them, try samples, meet the creators and founders. If you haven't tried a lot of biohacking things, it's a great chance to actually try them out in person. Things like BrainTap, Infrared Sauna, Hyperbaric Oxygen Chambers... 
and so much more. There are so many incredible speakers as well. You can hear talks from people I've had on the show like Paul Saladino, Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, Dr. Mercola, Dr. Annika Becca, and that is just a few of them. I seriously had the time of my life last year, and I would love to hang out with you guys. And you can get 35% off tickets. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference and use the coupon code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. That's melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference with the code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. This code can be used for general admission or for VIP access. Seating is limited. They do sell out. They sold out last year. So get your ticket now. And if you come, definitely let me know because I want to meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas. MelanieAvalon.com slash biohacking conference with coupon code BCMelanie. Get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there. Yeah. Another fact that I learned about the brain in your book, what is the significance that the brain is a, a vacuum in the progression of the disease or like a closed system? Yes. Yes. The, the brain is contained in this structure called the blood-brain barrier. The blood-brain brain barrier is this endothelial tight junctions or tight connections around the blood vessels, around the brain, where very little can get through the blood-brain barrier, unless it's either through active transport or it's so small that it can get through. This hermetic environment is susceptible because if toxins build up, it can cause significant damage. If clearance is not good, it can cause significant damage. In fact, when they've looked at, let me give one example, is lack of sleep. One night's bad sleep has shown to actually accumulate amyloid protein or other inflammatory products in the cerebral spinal fluid significantly. So this, the nature of it being so active, so vascular, so overproduction of byproducts, and then it's closed system as well, makes it even much more susceptible. It seems like it would be self-perpetuating in a way. It would be harder to, to climb out of once that spiral happens. Or is it easy, easier? It, no, no, I agree with you. I mean, so there are people that actually make claims that, uh, you know, they can reverse Alzheimer's. We're not going to name names, but, and we were told that if we just hinted at the fact that we could reverse Alzheimer's, we would sell millions more books. We said, that's unethical. We can't. There is no evidence that once fulminant Alzheimer's is on board, that you can reverse it, be it with some little vitamins or some little you know, uh, or even a comprehensive approach. You can potentially slow it down a little, but you can't reverse it because the damage is so overwhelming. And that what you just described, which is this circulating pathway that gets accelerated is so rapid that it's impossible to reverse it. Yeah. And some doctors are banking on the concept of neurogenesis, which means, you know, reproduction of neurons in the brain. I mean, it's something that hasn't really been studied extensively. And even though it happens, it doesn't happen on a massive scale. And we see evidence of that and examples of that in patients who have had strokes, you know? So stroke is a condition when there is a blockage of an artery in the brain and part of the brain that doesn't get oxygen and nutrition, it dies, right? You, and, and after a short period of time, the cells, the macrophages actually eat away that part of the brain and you're left with a hole in there. And so, you know, people have studied the process of angiogenesis and neurogenesis, and it's still at its very experimental process. So like Dean was saying, once the infrastructure is damaged to a great extent, it's impossible to regenerate that. And that's why we don't see much change in advanced Alzheimer's disease with anything, including lifestyle. But that's not hopeless. I mean, 
every year, uh, one person is diagnosed with Alzheimer's every 64 seconds in the United States. That's actually an understatement because in a lot of communities, people get dementia, but they say, oh, it's just part of normal aging. They never report it. But so if we can stop that conversion, yeah. it would be the biggest public health service ever. If we can slow that process down, that's the biggest public health service. We say 90% of it can be avoided. Let's say 40% of it can be avoided. Let me tell you why that's so important. We know the cost to the human cost. Earlier you said that uh, what's, the, what's happening to the person themselves. I'll describe that in a second because I've actually, having seen 14,000 patients, I, I kind of have a sense because I've heard the stories at different stages and I'll tell you that in a second. But let's talk about the cost. The human cost is just overwhelming. The, the financial cost, the second costliest disease in America is heart disease at $120 billion. Third costliest disease or disease is, is all cancers combined at 70 billion. Alzheimer's cost, direct cost, 305 billion. Indirect cost, another 240 billion. That's more than $540 billion a year. And that number is going to climb to above anywhere between 1.1 to $3 trillion total cost by 2040, 2050, which will overwhelm our system. So we really have to take it seriously and approach it a different way. And then the human cost is even worse. I mean, what I've seen, what I saw in my grandparents and Aisha saw in her grandparents, specifically my grandmother was the one that was, well, my grandfather was a brilliant, brilliant man. And we would all gather around him in, in, in this farm that we had in Maryland. We would be playing chess, all the grandchildren would, against him. And one day he forgot how to move the night. I mean, that was mind-blowing for the rest of us. But for him, the, we saw the fear just accumulate. And of course, he was trying to stay gracious and grand, but you saw bits and pieces of him abating and, and going away. My, my grandmother took the other path, which is complete avoidance, which is, you know, the two pathways are fight or flight. Hers, this brilliant matriarch, basically turned her face from the world. She would actually face the wall out of fear. This is what we're fighting. And that's why we're so adamant and so aggressive about gimmicks and charlatans, because the families out there, they don't need any of us. They're devastating. I mean, to be honest, they don't even have to buy our book, but they have to approach it in a comprehensive lifestyle way. And, and, and they don't have to pay anybody as far as vitamins or concoctions. This is a critical point. Wow. That is incredibly haunting. So is the cost of it because they require so much care? Yes. So that plus others. So, so it's, it's a chronic disease, right? And, and usually people live with memory problems for up to 12 years. And that's just an average number depending on other comorbidities that they may have. And we have a very broken system of how we're addressing patients with dementia. Back when we were training, when we went into the field, it would be essentially, you know, the doctor seeing the patient, examining them, getting some MRIs and some memory testing, and then giving them the news that they have Alzheimer's disease, that this was going to be a devastating condition long-term, and essentially asking the patient and their families to make the serious decisions for their life later on. And I, I remember one of the worst experiences of my life was working in a clinic where there was a stack of nursing home brochures on the table and the doctor would just kind of slip one to the patient 
and say, you better start making your plans right now because you're going to have difficulty making decisions for yourself very soon. And that's it. That's it. They would go out with all that fear and anxiety, little support, actually no support whatsoever, no medication to treat it, no medication to slow it down. And that's it. And so I'm glad that that has changed now because, you know, we're, we, we know that people can do so much before they can get to that stage. And even if they are at that stage, they can do a lot to slow down the progression of the disease. Speaking of on the medication front, because you do talk in the book about the medications that are available and why they don't exactly work, just hypothetically, if there was a medication, and I know we're on the the diet and lifestyle train, which is incredible, but just in theory, what would a medication have to do to actually work? Yeah, that's a great question. So we've learned a whole lot about medications and the biochemistry of safe, specifically, let's stick to Alzheimer's because different types of dementias have different biochemistries and processes. You know, for decades, scientists and NIH was focused on getting rid of amyloid beta protein and they would, you know, support research that would just, you know, attack amyloid with different compounds in different ways but they've realized that that's something, it's almost like, you know, when a, when the fire burns down the house and you get, you know, all the burnt bricks around you. Uh, the research on Alzheimer's was essentially, if I could kind of paint a picture, was getting rid of the burnt bricks, right? Nobody really did research on how the house burned down and where the fire started. So now, People are actually not looking at that model or looking at multiple different models at the same time. You know, even large pharmaceutical companies like Pfizer withdrew their entire research project from Alzheimer's disease because they realized that they were looking at it in a wrong way. And close to maybe 400 clinical trials over many, many decades hasn't resulted in a single therapy, not a single therapy whatsoever. There's some exciting research going on. Every year when we go to the Alzheimer's Association conference, we learn more about nuanced research, personalized research, finding out, you know, individuals, what do individuals carry, their genes, their biological risk factors, their metabolic risk factors, and coming up with a therapy in that realm. So I think, or I think I'm speaking for Dean, we think that there's not going to be one medication. There's not going to be one infusion. There's going to be multiple things that a patient has to go through for a treatment, whether that's immunotherapy, whether that's controlling the internal biochemistry of an individual, whether it's addressing aggressively their metabolic risk factors, et cetera. So I really, really love that analogy you made with the burnt bricks. It actually reminded me of another analogy that I often hear that I'm dying to hear your your larger thoughts on, especially since it is one of the four pathways. So with the lipid dysregulation, what are your thoughts on cholesterol and its role? I, the analogy I was thinking of that similar, you know, a lot of people in the low carb world will say that cholesterol is sort of like like that it's not the root cause and that it's not necessarily a bad thing depending on the context. So what are your thoughts on lipid dysregulation and, you know, HDL, LDL, triglycerides and how that relates to Alzheimer's? We go by the cumulative data, the cumulative data, be it from the vascular side, from the inflammatory side, from the amyloid side, from the genetic side, which is APOE4, from all of these things show, you know, high lipid levels are bad. Now, 
there's a differential between what kind of lipids and, you know, whether it's low density or it's cholesterol, all of that stuff. That's not as important. I mean, people are making it important because humanity's need for confirmation bias is just so massive that it can actually drive entire industries and entire movements. I say that people love hearing good news about their bad habits. You know, I was growing up in Pittsburgh. I used to eat fat and meat and all these things seven times a day. And, and, and if somebody would have said anything, I would have just, you know, what, you know, a young man, an athlete being told not to, you know, eat fat. Uh, that's just crazy. What are, what are you telling me? And if I, if I would have found somebody, anybody would have marshaled or, or led the path that, that said, you know, bacon is medicine, that would have been my hero. The data is all otherwise. The data, whether it's from the Harvard study, whether it's from the Columbia University or the California teacher study, which we studied in, or the Adventist Health study, where we are actually working in, whether it's from any of the studies shows that lipids and fats are not good for you, especially saturated fats. Right. Yeah. So all fats are not bad is the specific type of fat that has been associated with poor outcomes. The good thing is we have, you know, tremendous amount of data that points to one direction. I mean, of course, there are there is some data that shows the contrary. And that's how science is. You know, you have you have one side showing you one thing and a number of studies pointing to the other directions. And as a consensus and when guidelines are created, you essentially rely more on the amount of data that points to the greater amount of data that shows to you know, point towards one direction. And as far as fats and lipids are concerned, over and over, whether it's cardiovascular outcomes or for Alzheimer's disease, it's been seen that saturated fats, consumption of saturated fats have been associated with higher risk of Alzheimer's disease. And you know, we can go into some of the details too, whether it's from the aging project in Rush University where Martha Claire Morris, I mean, she was the lead author of the papers that define the mind diet, whether it's, you know, Dr. Paul Guillaume from the Adventist Health Study, whether it's the Northern California study that looked at close to 10,000 people over many years, higher saturated fat consumption and higher LDL levels, especially during midlife, seems to increase the risk for Alzheimer's disease and also vascular damage in the brain. To clarify for listeners, because saturated fats don't directly enter the brain, right? Right. They don't. So what's happening there with the fat and the brain? One of the things that we're seeing is we see patients two days a week, so thousands and thousands of patients, anybody who has memory disorder. One thing that's not diagnosed or is not recorded because there's no ICD-10 code for it is white matter disease. And what we're seeing universally and ubiquitously in people who have high cholesterol is white matter disease. And white matter disease is the vascular damage to the connections between neurons. So the most vascular organ in the body is the brain. If you ever look at one of those pictures where they've denuded the brain of all the other tissue and they've just left the vascular component, one wonders where there is room for anything else because it it looks like a multi, I mean, billions and billions of vessels in the brain. Now, those vessels uh, get smaller and smaller as they get to the cellular level. We're talking about capillaries. And yes, they're separated through a blood-brain barrier. What lipids do and, and saturated fat does, it actually damages the endothelial lining. It damages those vasculature. So you actually get significant damage, even short of strokes. What we call, and it's actually not the name, but we call millions of microstrokes. But literally, it's that. 
it's damage to the cellular level, be it through inflammation or through damage of the endothelial lining, or it's through little microvascular damages, which is millions of little strokes. Hi, friends. One of the most valuable things that I do every single night of my life is my infrared sauna session. The brand that I use is Sunlighten. I did a lot of research on infrared saunas before deciding on them. Their saunas are so high quality. They're low EMF. And what I really love is they have a solo unit. That's what I have. And it's really great if you live in a small apartment, might be moving. It's just really an amazing investment. And they have incredible deals and offers on it right now. You can actually get up to $200 off with the code Melanie Avalon. Or if you're talking to a rep, just tell them that I sent you. And like I said, that will be up to $200 off and that will also get you $99 shipping. Normally the shipping is like $600. So that's a really, really big deal. And if you do purchase a sauna, forward your proof of purchase to podcast at melanieavalon.com. And I will also send you a signed copy of my book, What, When, Why. If you'd like to learn more about the science of sauna, two resources. I interviewed the founder of Sunlighten, Connie Zach. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And then I also recently did an epic blog post all about the science of sauna. We'll also put that in the show notes. All right, now back to the show. And, you know, you hear that the brain is made out of fat, so it needs fats to survive. You know, that's true. The brain is made up of fat, but it doesn't require saturated fats or cholesterol because first, they don't pass through the blood-brain barrier like we discussed right now. And second, the kind of fat that's in the brain is structural fat. So this is a fat that makes up the lining of the extensions of the neurons, brain cells. It makes the walls and the membranes of these different cells, and they don't need to be replaced on a daily basis, right? So the brain itself can actually sustain the infrastructure of the brain by creating the necessary raw materials and the cholesterol that it requires can be produced in the body. The only type of fat that the brain needs on a regular basis are omega-3 fatty acids. And we need to consume those every single day. The rest, we don't need. In fact, if there's anything that, the one thing that has changed our mind in the last few, well, in the last year per se, because we just did two comprehensive reviews, which are painful forms of research. You have to collect all the data on a subject matter and then make sure that you're staying true to the subject matter was omega-3 and two papers. One was omega-3 in the developing brain, which is children, even you know, pre-birth and the first few years, and omega-3 and the aging brain. And what we found is that we need a lot more omega-3 than we thought. So we're not against the fact that if somebody wants to take omega-3 supplements, that's fine. And if they're not, they should be very, very, very cognizant of their source of omega-3. That's one type of fat that we definitely, definitely need. For those who aren't vegan, like, are you okay with krill oil and things like that? Or is it better to get the algae form? We go by data. I mean, we ourselves are vegan for multiple reasons, but the data against fish is not there. So if a fish seems to be healthy, most of the data shows that fish is healthy. So we have to stick by the data so that people trust what we're saying, right? We can't become dogmatic one direction or other. So yeah, if they want to get fish, that's fine. A fish oil, if they want to get a krill oil, we think that we worry, and this is extrapolation. Now, extrapolation is weaker data. <laughs> Just to show the, the, the transparency of what we're trying to say, there's, a, there's data-driven material where multiple scientists come together in consensus. That's the strongest form. Actually, people keep talking about randomized clinical trial because that's become the popular thing of the day because some 
some podcasts talked about randomized cl- reality is no true population-based data can come out of randomized clinical trials. You don't have the funds to run it long enough to give you population-based data. It, it makes no sense. So you need all of those kind of data. You need retrospective, you're not, you need prospective, you need randomized clinical and population-based. All of those are needed. And consensus takes all of that together, multiple scientists, and they give you, so that's the strongest. When what we're doing next, which is I'm going to extrapolate, which means from how much I know and what I worry, I say this, take it for what it is. We worry that if people take fish-based omega-3s, we check for inconsistently, by the way, nutraceuticals, they're never checked, but we check inconsistently for lead, mercury, and PCBs but we don't check for another 30,000 chemicals that accumulate in animals. So we worry about that. That's basically it. So we avoid it for that reason and, and others. But, but to be honest, the data is not there against consuming fish as far as health and brain health is concerned. The toxicity with the different environmental chemicals and how they accumulate is a huge, huge concern of mine. I had mercury toxicity pretty bad. And ever since then, I, it's just, I've been so, so aware of it. Sorry, just to belabor that point even more, we, we've added 30,000 chemicals into the water systems. And yes, plants can get toxic as well and all this, but as, as biofiltering organisms or concentrators. or concentrators, what animals and fish are, the bigger the fish, the more chemicals that they will accumulate. So for example, an animal like a tuna, which eats multiple smaller organ- animals, they accumulate lots of toxins. A carnivore that's in the higher in the chain is going to accumulate much more toxins. So one has to be aware of that. And by the way, none of those toxins we check. None of them. Right. Not a, it's not a standard of care, at least. I went deep in the rabbit hole trying to find all the research I could find on mercury specifically, but toxicity levels in fish. And like the difference between a piece of swordfish, for example, and like tilapia, the difference could be the equivalent of having 300 pieces of tilapia and one piece of swordfish. So now when I see that on the menu at restaurants, I'm like, please, please don't order it. So while we're in the fat world, what are your thoughts on MCTs for Alzheimer's? Yeah. So MCTs are highly fractionated fats. They're, you know, they're, they're processed and they're marketed in a way where it suggests that they can be used as fuel for brain cells. The research that has come to us are from very, very small populations of individuals who have advanced diseases of the brain, but we don't have any evidence on larger relatively healthy populations to tell us whether that works or not. And the idea is these medium chain fatty acids, when they're given to the brain, they're going to be used as fuel as opposed to glucose being used as a fuel. It essentially creates an artificial environment for the brain to stop functioning its normal duties and you know, function on a shortcut that was biologically created when human beings were under duress or under stress. For example, in states of starvation or disease or immense amount of stress. And that may work for a shorter period of time, but we really need to expand on strengthening the normal biological processing and extend their life as for as long as possible. So we don't suggest MCT oil right now for people who want to avoid diseases. We actually don't have any evidence of MCT preventing diseases like stroke and Alzheimer's disease. And when it comes to advanced stages of the disease, 
we don't have strong data that that actually works. This is a very good point. Thank you, Ash. It's critical to, to know what to base public health on, right? People can do whatever they want on the individual basis, but public health advice is very, very important to be accurate and based on you know the latest data. Now, our favorite phrase in our household, we have two teenagers, is to the best of our knowledge today. And to most lay people, that sounds like that's a weak thought process. Wait, if, it, if you don't have perfect data, then well, how can, no. Everything around us is based on that concept. Even the telephones, the airplanes, to the best of our knowledge, the knowledge moves forward and we have to adjust with the best knowledge in front of us. And that works. To the best of our knowledge today, glucose is the best form of energy, not fast glucose. We're talking about complex carbohydrates, not mm -hmm. simple processed, chemically laden carbohydrates, but complex carbohydrates seems to be for the great majority population. I'm not talking about celiac disease population or the 2% that are gluten allergic, but for the general population, that seems to be the beneficial. Whether ketogenic diet is beneficial, there has never been a long-term study. And that's important for me to say, I know that there, you might have population that might not like this, or, but long-term data matters because something that, can, that is beneficial short-term does not necessarily mean it's beneficial long-term. But that, that said, yeah, we're, we're very, very excited about the research that is going on. Yes. And we're hoping to learn more about it and just really looking forward for clarification of this, this incredible opportunity to learn more about a dietary pattern. So just again, for uh, almost like to the point of excess, we, we are not against any of this data until the data is it's validated. I love hearing that so much. And that's one of my favorite things about this show is bringing on viewpoints from all the different sides. Because the thing that scares me more than anything is becoming dogmatic about anything. Actually, so my concern, because I, I do think a lot of times, you know, ketogenic and low-carb diets can be very therapeutic for people. But one of my concerns, and you sort of touched on it just now, and I, I don't think we talk about this enough, is that I think people can be too casual with it. And what I mean by that is you were talking about how, you know, the difference between making recommendations for an entire population versus the individual. And I think people sort of like flirt with the ketogenic diet. And so they'll take in, you know, really high fat macronutrients, but it's like, if they're not actually being ketogenic or if they're having too many carbs or if they change their mind and then they just go back to normal eating, then they're in a state of a very high fat diet, which makes me nervous. Like I, like I feel like the, the high fat diet, it's very, very context dependent and having the health benefits. And so I think people can get a little bit casual with it. I love the way you explained yeah, that. That's beautiful. just beautiful. Um, it's, <laughs> you've had many conversations on this. So that and I think a, that's the most important point. I think most yeah. of the conversation should pivot around just what you said right now. How do we translate all of this fabulous science that is coming to us from the echo chambers of scientific communities to the population. Are we causing more discomfort and more misunderstanding and misguidance by all of this conversation about nutrition? Because there's a lot, there's a lot of noise out there and everybody's probably coming from a place where it exists. You know, nobody creates things, so maybe some people do, but most of it is there, but how can we contextualize it into populations is where we need to converse. So, so the ketogenic diet came from our field, from neurology, but specifically a subpopulation of children who had seizure that was intractable. Yeah, um, Lennox-Gastaut Lennox syndrome. syndrome. So these poor kids had seizures multiple per day, and even four anti-epileptics wouldn't control it. 
So they put them in a shock state, which is ketogenic diet. Now, first of all, that should just put, give you a pause. Like, why would we take a disease state as a model for the rest of the population? And, and what, what it did for that population is not what we want to do for ourselves because it put, it put ourselves in shock state to stop seizures is not what we're trying to achieve. We're trying to get optimal nutrients and energy source to the brain so that it can optimally operationalize, not become quiet. That was the whole point of it in that context. Yes, it was applied in other populations as well, but not as much. And, and given that we've, we've deal with it on a regular basis, I rec- we recognize how difficult it is to truly attain ketosis. And here's the big part, to truly maintain ketosis for years. In fact, find me one population that has been documented, population I'm saying, to maintain ketosis for long periods of time. So what we're doing is we're introducing a concept based on that kind of a paradigm. Even there was a meta-analysis recently, with, and if you look at the meta-analysis, the papers that are in the meta-analysis, like three people and five people, none of them longer than six months. So just because it was called meta-analysis, all of a sudden it took over media. And also I have to say, when they say better outcomes, yes, there were some changes in the neuropsychological testing, but it was not a clinically significant outcome. It was essentially just numbers. So does this make people's memory better? Do they function better? Can they drive again? Can they do their laundry again? Can they carry on a conversation without forgetting who the other person is in front of them after five minutes? That, was, that didn't happen. The clinical significance was not there. And that's why when we, when we say we don't have any evidence, we get challenged, but look at the numbers. Yeah, the numbers might be a little different from baseline, but they did not really change the course of the disease. As a matter of fact, it could actually even harm. And there was some evidence to show that people's LDL went up and their metabolic risk factors got worse after they stopped it. It's interesting because I guess the one population people often use as an example is the Inuits. They have something in their genes that actually makes them not as ketogenic, which is very interesting (laughs) that they're like the one population that would be long-term, but they have a genetic adaptation to not be ketogenic as much. Yeah, you're absolutely but but also look at their cardiovascular outcomes that have been recently looked at. Yeah, when they did autopsies on them, most of them had clogged arteries. They had atherosclerotic diseases of the heart and their vasculature. Which as it happens, nobody ever talks about. Do you know if they had that historically before processed foods became introduced? Like I feel like they have had a dietary shift. We don't know that. We don't know that. But reality is we can't use the data where it you know serves our purpose and not use the data where it doesn't serve our purpose, right? So we don't know that. If we're going to say that they benefited, yet the cardiovascular system was not benefited, then we, that stands for all the data that came before and after. On the flip side, so we've just talked a lot about low-carb and ketogenic diets, but you do talk a lot about the very problematic role of sugar on the flip side. Something I learned that blew my mind was that the insulin-degrading enzyme also degrades amyloid. And so when it's being used on insulin, I'm guessing we can't quite degrade as much of the tau or amyloid. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's almost saturating the system, right? You know, where you're in damage control mode and not in the thrive mode. And that's exactly what happens. I think one of the things that we, we think is the main problem of people vilifying carbohydrates is because it's been looked at as, you know, a Yeah, monosyllabic thing. When you say carbohydrates, my goodness, I mean, there are different types of carbohydrates, right? A fiber is a carbohydrate. So nuance is necessary in language. All carbs are not bad. Complex carbohydrates are the most important source of fuel 
or brain cells. And we need these complex carbohydrates in a specific amount at a specific time of the day for our brain cells to use them as nutrients, as fuel. And like you said, when we saturate our system with refined carbohydrates or sugar, let's just call it sugar, what happens is your body goes into a frenzy, your insulin receptors, your insulin regulating hormones and enzymes, they go into frenzy and your body completely forgets how to use it as fuel. And that's when the inflammatory processes start and the damage starts. For listeners, I will definitely just plug that you've got to get the 30-day Alzheimer's solution because it has an epic list of recipes and everything that you could ever want for implementing the, the dietary choices. And it's a, a really, really beautiful book. Thank you. We, we put a cake on the cover because we wanted to kind of shock people to show them that, you know, yeah, you can have a cake for, for have, and, and have a healthy brain, you know, healthy food and healthy eating doesn't have to be deprivation. No, oh, I love that. I love that so much. Another huge question. So you talk a lot in your books about the role of activities in the brain, memories, complex activities. I mean, there's a lot of discussion about like brain games and stuff like that. So what role does actually using our brain play in our brain health? Oh, wow. I would say, you know, we, we're always asked about nutrition. We both have masters in nutrition and we, Aisha is also a cook and we live around, you know, this, this concept. We but eat a lot. We eat a lot. Food. That's right. We love, <laughs> but cognitive activity is the most important thing. Absolutely. So this incredible brain, we're talking about a brain that, that functions constantly at a rate that a supercomputer today is, there are no supercomputers that are functioning at the rate that our brain is. Why? I mean, it's not just to find a mate. For some of us, it was complicated. <laughs> I, Aisha would attest to that. Was, but, but, but it's not just to find a mate. It's not just to run away from the tiger. It's data, data. It's a data-hungry organ. So we talk about good stress and bad stress. Bad stress is the kind of stress that's not driven by your purpose, that's, that's, uh, that doesn't have clear directions, that doesn't have clear victories or successes. And that creates this long-term state of angst and anxiety and uh, what we call autonomic overdrive, which destroys the whole body. Now, here's the good stress. And your brain needs good stress almost as much or more than oxygen and blood and nutrients because it needs to be challenged. In order to maintain those connections, it needs to be challenged. It needs to be pushed. There are 87 billion neurons. Each of them can make a couple of connections or as many as 30,000 connections. Although earlier we said that, yeah, there's not as much neurogenesis, but what there is throughout life, even in people in their 90s, is more connections. You can make connections and those connections are not small matter. They're a huge matter. They're protection. Imagine if each neuron of the, of the 87 billion make 30,000 connections instead of five, six, 10 connections. That's protection, that's brain growth, that's knowledge. So neuroplasticity is that, those connections. And how you get those connections, I know I'm gonna, just like blueberries, I always attack Sudoku. There's nothing intrinsically wrong with Sudoku, but we did a meta-analysis, was published on, in PubMed in 2018, a major journal. I'm very proud of that meta-analysis and looked at cognitive activity and uh, mild cognitive impairment or avoiding Alzheimer's. And what we found was three major things. One was purpose, two was complexity, three was challenge. Activities that have purpose, which means that are driven by your passions or your wants, 
They're complex, which means multiple domains of your brain are challenged. Challenge means you're continually pushing yourself to the next level. What does that look like? Well, that looks like learning a new musical instrument. That looks like learning a new song well, with that new musical instrument. That means that looks like learning a new dance. That looks like running a company that you would have always wanted to. That looks like volunteering. That looks like playing cards with friends, complex cards. That looks like drawing. That looks like building. That looks like things that you would have loved. That looks like classes that you always wanted to take and not histology like we had to take in medical school. <laughs> but it looks like that. Why? Let's take one of those. And I've used this analogy a lot, but I love it. Aisha is an amazing singer on top of everything else. I play guitar badly for 30 years, but I love it. The cacophony I create comes from this. When you're playing a new musical, like a guitar, you're reading the notes. That's your left parietal lobe. You're processing it visually. It's your occipital lobe. You're processing it cognitively, your frontal lobe. You're being creative. It's your parietal lobe. You're emotionally invested in the music. It's your limbic system. You're dexterous with your fingers and coordination. That's your cerebellum and your motor cortex. That's no Sudoku. That's your entire brain being marshaled to the battlefield. That grows your brain more than anything else. And you don't have to pay anybody a penny. You don't have to buy, you know, spend money on an app. Find your purpose and put yourself all into that purpose. Hi friends. So I'm sort of haunted by clothes. If you follow me on Instagram, you probably know that I love wearing all the new clothes all the time. And I know that that is not really sustainable and not good for the planet. That's why I am thrilled that there is now a way to get all of the clothes with none of the waste. And I'm going to tell you how you can get unlimited clothes with no waste for a month for free. That's right, I now have a website for both myself and you guys where you can get free unlimited clothes with free shipping, free exchanges, nonstop from all of the hottest brands, and it is so incredibly easy. It's called MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. We have so many incredible brands, including my favorites like BCBG, Calvin Klein, and so many more. Think like a hundred brands. There are so many options. And the way it works is when you get a subscription, you search through the clothes, pick what you want. They send it to you with fast, easy shipping. You wear it as long as you want. And then when you're ready for more clothes, you just drop it off in their prepackaged envelope and get your next round. It is so incredibly cool. They have multiple plans. The starter plan gives you two pieces at a time. Friends, I actually have a little secret hacked. Don't tell them that I told you this. When you get your two pieces, you can actually immediately go into your account, click return, and they'll go ahead and send you the next two pieces. So technically you can have four pieces at a time. You also have a cool virtual closet that you can keep stocked with everything you eventually want to order so you never miss out. And if you really like something and want to keep it, you can opt to buy it at a massively discounted price. Friends, I'm obsessed. This is finally the answer to wearing all the clothes all the time with none of the waste. Oh, and of course, one of my major reservations was the cleaning compounds that they use on the clothes because yes, it is dry cleaning, which normally makes me nervous. And they don't say this on the website. So I reached out to them and I was like, hey, what's going on with the cleaning? What do you guys use? Because I can't promote this if it's just normal dry cleaning. And thankfully, they let me know that they do not use any detergents, fabric softeners, or chemicals that are harsh. Everything is professionally dry cleaned or laundered with detergents that are free from dyes and scents. 
It's all gentle and it uses low temperature cycles. So yes, we are good on that front as well. It is the coolest thing ever and you can try it free for a month. Yes, completely free. Just go to melanieavalonscloset.com to sign up free clothes for a month. After that, their plans are super affordable. We're talking honestly, an entire month is less than the cost of typically what would be the cost of one dress. And I am not kidding. That's right. Unlimited clothes for less than the cost of one outfit. I'm just so thrilled to bring this resource to you guys. I can't wait to hear what you guys think. So again, get free unlimited clothes for a month at melanieavalonscloset.com. That's melanieavalonscloset.com for all of the clothes none of the waste. And definitely share your pictures and tag me on Instagram because I want to see all the fabulous things that you guys are wearing. That's melanieavalonscloset.com. I love that. That's a fun prescription to get from the doctor. So enjoying an activity, a mental stimulation activity versus not. So like a kid being forced to memorize something for school. Do you know if that plays any factor, whether or not you're enjoying it? Yeah, I think you're pointing to good stress and bad stress. So, you know, any activity that brings joy and is connected to your purpose and something that you look forward to doing again, that is good stress. That's the kind of stress you want. Like, for example, Melanie, you've been doing this podcast and I'm pretty sure, you know, preparing for it and having all these amazing people on your show. That's that's quite a lot of work, but it's your good stress. Bad stress is one that has no purpose that has no outcome, that has no <clears throat> end to it. And that actually causes a lot of damage to the brain. It, it not only causes you know, damage physically because of all the cortisol and the adrenaline and the harmful chemicals that are produced, but it also becomes a chronic issue. You know, Vasculature, your blood vessels are get involved in it. And that's why when people are under chronic uncontrolled stress, they're at a higher risk of developing Alzheimer's and they literally have smaller brains. Their brain atrophy starts very early in life. The, the one thing though with the kids. So if you let a kid, I mean, I can imagine myself when I was young, what would I like to do is basically play, right? So, so how can you introduce math and science and, and or business or, you know, how can you introduce these things that are not just running around outside because you need to do those things. Where we go wrong in our educational system, like is based on success. Like is based on tension and release, meaning there should be a little bit of tension where the brain is pushed, where the person is pushed, and but then there's room for success. What we do in our educational system is either we make it too hard because we have to fit 35 people, so a group of people, for them it's too hard, so they actually feel the tension too much, it creates anxiety that is not relieved, and they start disliking it because the brain puts a title on those things, big titles. I like it. I don't like it because it's not, it's not at the right phase or if it's too easy, it bores people. So what should be done for kids especially is giving them tasks, be it math, physics, and all of those topics can be fun, but it should be right at the edge of where they are, where they're feeling the tension, but then the doorway of, of success and creativity opens up and that pushes people towards that learning and curiosity. What we do is we keep closing those doors by making it inappropriate for where they are. Sorry, a little bit of tangent on on human behavior, but I love that concept. No, no, I love that. It reminds me of, I was studying recently conversations and what makes you likely to engage. And it's like, if it's too familiar 
then you're just bored and you don't engage. But if it's too alienating and you don't understand, then you, you check out because you, because <laughs> you, you, you can't engage. So it requires that like perfect balance of being slightly novel, but familiar enough to be safe. Very, very fascinating. What about multitasking? It seems to me like that's really working your brain, but you talk about the studies on multitasking and them not being favorable for the brain. So our brain is not made for multitasking. And by definition, multitasking, so you know, doing multiple things at the same time, people may feel that they're good multitaskers. I hear a lot of my patients and clients say, oh, I'm really good at it. I can do multiple things at the same time. And, you know, the response, the usual response, and I think we've said this many times, is there's no such thing as multitasking. There's only doing multiple things badly. It essentially highlights the underestimation of this fascinating organ that we have. We can do multiple things at the same time, but we have to keep it siloed. We have to keep it on track. So you're, you know, you're, you're, you basically take on an activity or a project, you end it at a particular time, and then you start another one. Don't assume that you're going to be able to do all of them at the same time because your brain doesn't have the capacity to attend to each and every detail of the tasks. And when we multitask and when we consider this as a normal thing, it affects our focus and attention. And one of the things that is critically important for us to have brilliant minds is to continuously focus and attend to a task at hand. Beautiful. And it's it's critical to also note that we keep talking about dopamine, 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 and, and people, you know, use dopamine as, okay, it's a motivation. So what does that mean? Dopamine has to do with success of survival. That's why there are two main systems involved in dopamine. One is movement, get you moving away from threat. And if you succeed, the dopamine is released. The other is behavior, emotion, right? But they're both connected but they both are related to success. So multitasking means doing multiple things. And a lot of times, even if you accomplish one of the tasks, the others are left unfinished. So that leaves the sense of disarray, a sense of dissonance and discomfort. That is actually a sympathetic state, which affects the body significantly. I'll explain that part in a second, but you can do multiple things. I mean, Richard Branson has 300 companies. But he's one of the happiest persons because I've heard him talk about this is he isolates each behavior to its end point. And those don't have to be long end points. Break activities into small chunks of achievement and make sure that when you achieve them, you check it off yeah. either visually or cognitively. I got it done. That sense of accomplishment creates the true motivation. We don't believe in the word motivation except in this context, which is when you accomplish something, your brain feels good, the dopamine is released, it pushes you to the next activity. So you can do multiple things, but break them down into those chunks of achievement. And that creates a pattern, that creates positive habits, that creates direction. Where we go wrong is when we create these undefined, amorphous behaviors and multiple of them and put ourselves into it. And yeah, maybe we may be able to accomplish one of them, but the rest of them have left this very weird and awkward feeling in us, which damages us physically and emotionally and as far as accomplishment is concerned. They demotivate us long-term. So that's basically it. That really, really resonates with me. Probably the thing that keeps me most happy and sane in my life is my planner. And it's very, very detailed because everything is on it all the time. 
and then things get checked off. But if they're not done, they're still there. So I know, like, I know they're still on the list. So I don't have to worry about them not being done or me forgetting them. I don't understand not having a planner. Yeah. You know, and, and just to add to that, I'm going to make a grand statement here, but all of us multitask in a way all day long. We actually have micro multitasking, even when we're conversing with someone. You know, I, I get patients coming in and say, I walk into a room and I don't know why I'm there. Or when I'm having a conversation, I lose my train of thought because I don't remember where the conversation was going or where it started. Am I having Alzheimer's disease? And when you look at their lifestyle, they've been essentially trained not to focus at a task in hand because there's so many other things going on in their mind. And the energy is completely shifted. They become very demotivated. And what happens is, you know, even if it's a simple conversation, they can't even be creative. Forget about creativity. They're actually struggling to keep their thoughts on a track to finish that conversation. The good news is you can train your brain to be more focused, more attentive, and to shut down a thought in your head and completely focus on one action at a time. <clears throat> what, what we're very proud of uh, with this book, with the second book, The 30-Day Alzheimer's Solution, is the fact that, yes, it has 75 amazing, easy, healthy, tasty recipes. It has behavioral aspects as far as sleep and, and stress management and all that. But at, at its core, it's a, it's a habit creation machine. And that's important because if all we did was just throw some recipes at people or some what food is good or what food is bad or what, you know, to, how to exercise, it just creates more tension. So the 30 days, we were very uncomfortable with the name because a lot of times when people use that, it's a gimmick. We didn't mean that in 30 days, you're going to reverse Alzheimer's. Definitely not going to reverse Alzheimer's or you're going to avoid disease. But in 30 days, you're going to learn the foundations of how to create healthy habits that can last a lifetime. And that habit creation is about what we just talked about right now, how to manage that dopamine so you are in control as opposed to it. I love that so much. So again, for listeners, I'll put links in the show notes. We talked about so much. I'll put links to the studies, to the books, everything so that you can check out there. There'll also be a complete transcript because I know we dive deep into a lot of things. But thank you so much, Dr. Dean and Dr. Aisha. This has been amazing. Your book just really, really opened my mind, no pun intended, to so much that I had no idea about. And I, I learned so much. You're doing incredible, amazing things for so many people. On that note, actually, the last question I ask every single guest on this show, and it's just because I realize more and more each day how important mindset is. So what is something that you're grateful for? I'm grateful for having this brain, not because my brain is any special, just the ability to sense the world, the ability to sense others' suffering, the ability to sense the fact that I, this brain can give me the capacity to do things for others and help others. That is the greatest gift in the universe. So I'm thankful that I've been given this tool, not just to serve myself, but uh, the people around me and, and our, the people around us and, and this planet. I was going to say the same. <laughs> we live together in the same environment. 18 years. <laughs> no, but I'm really grateful for having the opportunity to hopefully make a difference towards a better world for all of us. We have children. We have two children, Alex and Sophie. They're 16 and 14. And I see how they think and how they perceive the world around them. And that makes me so happy and hopeful for our future. 
And I'm really grateful to be able to connect with individuals outside of our immediate family and friends like yourself to talk about important things like brain health, mental health, and health in general, not just for human beings, but for the planet. Well, that is so wonderful. And again, I cannot thank you both enough. I so thoroughly enjoyed the books. I, this conversation was incredible. Thank you for being open to discussing everything and all of the nuances. And I just, I can't wait to air this episode for my audience. Is there any other links that you would like to put out there for people to best follow your work? We love connecting with everyone. We are sharesimd.com and sharesimd on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Perfect. Well, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. So thank you both. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you you so so much. much. Thank you. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. For more information, you can check out my book, What Win Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine, as well as my blog, MelanieAvalon.com. Feel free to contact me at podcast at MelanieAvalon.com. And always remember, you got this.